This week, I don't know if you ever listened to Garrison Keeler, but he talks about the week in Lake Wobegon. Uh, this past week in Lake Wobegon. This past week in the local church has been interesting. Not that they aren't all interesting. Um, church works interesting work. It's strange work. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's complicated. It's messy. Um, but this week was an ordinary week, but extraordinary. An elder and I sat with a young couple whose little baby girl will have to endure a second major neurosurgery, brain surgery, uh, one that was uh, a very touch-and-go not long ago, and they have to do it again. And you listen to a story of a couple, and you see their angst and concern and fears and hopes and great surgeons that they have and medical care, and you listen to the story, and you almost feel like you shouldn't be privy to what they're talking about. It's sacred, it's holy, it's life and death. Your life is consumed with that. And then we uh, held a memorial service here on, on Friday night for Everly Baker, a little baby, uh, not even a month old, I guess, born on the 28th of December and died on January 18th. Little, sweet, beautiful Everly. I've done more funerals and memorials than I can recall and a lot of children, and I can say unequivocally in 34 years, I have never seen a young couple walk through a situation like that with grace, with mercy, with the ups and downs, with anger and sadness and questioning and wondering and laughter and all mixed. I have never seen a couple walk through it that way. It was, they ministered to me. And this room was full of people from near and far, from the OI community, also known as Brittle Bone. And, um, and you, you stand there and watch this young couple go through something that you, sh- you should never bury. Bur- some of you bury children. You should never bury a child. You bury parents. You bury grandparents. Old people. You don't bury a child for any reason. And you study the word and you meet with people and you have coffee and you read and you get involved with your community group and it's a weird business. It's a hallowed business. It's an otherworldly business. It's intangible. But it's about you. It's about your lives and mine. I don't, you, you don't lay awake at night worrying about the things that I worry about. You worry about your marriage and your parenting and your job and your health and your friends and your love life and how you're going to find a job this week and will you get this contract or that contract and how your practice is going to go, and will you finish school, will you finish med school, will you finish your advanced degrees, will you go to college. You, you're consumed with the stuff of life. We want to help, but we don't always know how. Sometimes you're just there. But it's a privilege to be part of this family. It's a lavish privilege to be part of the people of God. We're all just limping along, aren't we? <coughs> Trying to figure it out. If you, got, if you got it figured out, just take one of the exits and go. We don't need you. <laughs> I don't have it figured out. It's a life of faith. In the 1960s, there were T-shirts people proudly wore that said, Question Authority. Some of us are old enough to remember those. Anti-establishment movement was strong. Vietnam War was 
anathema and we won't go and children pounded themselves on the pavement and acted like six-year-olds and refused to go to war. The boomers came along after the builder generation and we demanded things be better for us and just by the sheer number of boomers the culture had to coincide and agree with the boomer and so marketing and consumerism and all that we have technologically was largely driven by this massive population that wanted and demanded things to be a certain way. And then as the progressions go on with different groups, of course, we type them as Gen Xers and Gen Y, the millennials. Um, each of us look at authority in a different way. The boomer obviously didn't like the authority it grew up under and wanted a different reality. The, um, the Gen Xers tend to look at authority as experienced and they defer to them a little bit. The Gen Y and the millennials are back to the question authority. They don't like authority. They don't trust authority. They don't believe authority. And they think they should have their way. And it will cycle again and again and again. We watched the recent issues in Ferguson and New York between police and African-American communities. And we're puzzled and distraught and frustrated. And the clash of authority is happening in those levels. We watch what's happening in Yemen with terrorism and around the world, and the clash of authority is ever-present. Question, do those things affect the way you view authority? Is the job to question authority, to challenge authority? What do they know? Or is the job to submit to authority, to fall under it, to obey it, to believe it, to know we're in an ordered society? And more importantly, how does your view of authority affect your own spiritual life when you have this book called the Word of God that is authoritative? If I have a problem with authority, might I tend to have a problem with the authority of God's Word in places? If I have a problem with someone telling me what to do, might I have a problem when the Scripture tells me what to do? You must sort through that, but I would suggest it affects the way you view the Scripture. We sang a creed, and that creed is a response to what we have from our Scripture. You said, I believe, I believe. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just sang along. But the creed is saying, I believe in these things. I'm convinced of the things. I will hang my life on these things. I have so much faith in them. Could it be that your attitude toward authority affects your attitude toward Scripture? Today I want to do three things. I want to, first of all, talk about the uniqueness of our Bible. Scripture is unique, and we'll think about that for a few minutes. I want to, secondly, define some key terms. Just a very quick glossary of terms we sometimes use when we speak of the authority of Scripture. And third, I want to see in two main passages what the Scripture says about its own authority. So as we begin, why the Scripture is unique. Secondly, some terms. And thirdly, what the Scripture says about itself as having authority. So let's begin with the Scripture being a unique book. No other religious book on the planet uh, is like this book that we hold. There's not another one like it. It is unique. Unique means one of a kind. You don't modify the word unique. You don't say truly unique or very unique. Unique is a non-modifiable word. It is unique. If you were to compare it to other 
uh, books, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, if you were to look at other religious systems and how they got that book, there is no comparison with the way we got the Bible. Those books, very simply, as a survey, came through one individual, sometimes some alleged witnesses, and they compiled these stories, and then religious systems are birthed. This book is comprised by 40 authors over 2,000 years' time frame. That begins the unique aspect of a religious text over against the Bible. I will argue and submit and defend that the Bible is the most reliable, unique book on the planet. And it withstands criticism and the test of time because of that. God has divinely inspired 40 different authors to write stories and narrative and history and chronology and kingdoms of monarchies that rose and fell that align with the Assyrian and Babylonian stories of the same time frames. They record the failings and warts and all of the heroes that were flawed and sinful characters all. That records its own civil war in the book of Judges, the darkest days of God's chosen people killing one another. That comes full circle in the New Testament where a murderer becomes an apostle, essentially a murderer, becomes an apostle. Where each of these stories from these 40 different authors agrees, corresponds, overlaps, intersects in ways that make the book otherworldly. We speak of internal witnesses, meaning that what was written 700 years earlier agrees with what was written 700 years later. The two authors from two different places in time said the same kinds of things. We look at the reliability of those witnesses, whether it's Moses or Joshua or Jeremiah or, in, jump to the, or David in the, in the Psalms, the recordings of the monarchies, Samuel's writings. When you jump to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the outlier gospel, Luke, Luke the doctor. When we look at the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, they all agree. When we have this unique document, we, there's a lot of questions that come along with it, and where to start and stop becomes a bit of a challenge. The record of authority that you hold in your hand is a reliable document. The Old Testament was largely simply compressing lots of history, overseen by a group of scribes called the Masoretes. Your Old Testament Hebrew Bible is called the Masoretic Text. That book, the Old Testament written largely in Hebrew by the Masoretes, is the most reliable document on the planet, period. They continue to find evidence of this in all sorts of ways, in all kinds of places, not only archaeologically, but within the document. The so-called Dead Sea Scrolls that were found by the Essene community, if you go to Israel, or better yet, when you go to Israel, will take you to the Essene community, the so-called Qumran Caves, where a little boy threw a rock and hit a clay pot and pitcher and went in and found a scroll. That became one of the most important discoveries for textual critics in our lifetime. And they found these scrolls intact. And the big sort of coup de grace was a scroll of Isaiah as one entire parchment. Until that time, biblical scholars had disagreed on whether or not Isaiah was a multiple authorship written over lots of time. And people edited and copied it. And they found one scroll, start to finish, that was copied. It proved once and for all that the book was intact, the story was intact. And these scriptoriums, where they copied the scripture... Remember the old Xerox commercials where they have all the monks copying scripture and they wheel in a Xerox machine, they go, oh, you know. <laughs> Wasn't that way. 
They had to copy them letter per letter. It's not like copying the way we would copy. You take a sentence and give it to a first grade class and the teacher writes a 10 word sentence. By the time it gets to the 20th student, it looks very little like the first time it started the journey because errors are made in the copy. So what the scribes did, the Masoretes, the scribe means counter, by the way, is they would copy a panel. Let's just call it a page for our terminology. They'd copy a panel, and then they would count the primary characters. And they put a number at the bottom. And then it was checked against the original. If the number of characters was different, they would count and recount and check and try to find the difference. But then you've got a corrupt document. You can't throw it away because it's the Word of God. So what do you do with it? You roll it up. You put it in a crock and you bury it in the desert. And those are some of which, in in a simple story, of how we have so many manuscripts. The Old Testament being managed by these Jewish scribes were very particular, very fastidious. They were the best in their day who could copy that scripture in such a way. Now, trick question, what's the oldest book in the Bible? Someone said Job. You think Job is the oldest book in the Bible? How many think Job is the oldest book in the Bible? You're right. Job is the oldest book. No, Genesis. No, Job's the oldest book in the Bible. It's written before the compilation. So what we have here is oral tradition, a story that's told and a story that at some point is written down. Your Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that essentially comprises the Old Testament Scripture. So when you see rabbis holding those two, uh, two handles and the vellum cover and they, they dance around and march around and rejoicing because they have God's word, generally speaking, it's just the first five books, the Torah. Those scriptures were stories that were told and at some point written down. I would argue Moses wrote down the Pentateuch and there's disputes about that, all kinds of theories. God had Moses up on a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Is he just carving the Ten Commandments during that time? He's talking to him. He comes down, remember the epiphany, the Shekinah is is shining around Moses. It scares people. He puts a veil over his face. He's been with God. What is God, what are they talking about? The weather? God's giving him the law. And in God's superintention of the story that he gave to Moses, he writes down those five books. He writes down the Levitical law, which was the corpus, the body of the law, not just the Ten Commandments. How did he know how to make the tabernacle complex? How did he know the degree of the detail of the filigrees and the the gold and the bronze and the metals that were going to be used and the dimensions of it? God revealed that's the law. God revealed it to him. And at some point, Moses wrote it down. Could there have been other scribes? Sure. Joshua probably could have helped him. But the story was told and written. When you come to the New Testament, we have a different situation. The New Testament manuscripts are written in Koine Greek, common Greek. Not modern Greek today, but a common language. It would be the lingua franca of the day, what most people would know in the Asian world. That would be, we'd say, English in a Western world. Koine Greek would have been a very common way of writing. The challenge we have with New Testament Greek is the stories. We have so many copies, it becomes complicated. In simple terms, just think of it as we have 120% of the information. Let's say there are 100 copies of the New Testament. They're not all complete, but just for argument's sake, there's a hundred full copies of it, and they differ a little bit. When you read in your New Testament, if you ever look at those little cross-reference notes in the middle, those little tiny numbers and letters, oftentimes it will say, some MSS say. That word MSS is an abbreviation for manuscripts. We've got 
thousands of manuscripts. Not all of them are the complete New Testament. Some are just a part of the New Testament. Some example are the Alexandrian texts were copied by monks into Greek and they were fragments that was lost, they were broken. The, the book was, sometimes the book, think about the way you use newspaper. Sometimes the book was torn up and used for different things. So they're called lectionaries or fragments. If you ever look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see them open these hermetically sealed glass things, about like an architect uh, map drawer, and it'll have pieces of the script. It's like a, a jigsaw puzzle that can never be resolved. And there's thousands of fragments of the New Testament. So back to 100 of them. Let's say we have 100 of them. And one says the kingdom of God in Christ. And one says the kingdom of God. One says the kingdom of Christ. Which one's right? There's all kinds of textual criticism ways that the scientists, really theologians, go back and figure this out. Let me just simplify it by a, a sort of one thumbnail rule. The hardest and shortest reading. The hardest and shortest reading. So if it's the oldest reading and it's hard and it's short, we think that's probably the way it was recorded properly. Why? Because a person copying it would say, this doesn't make any sense. Let me explain it a little bit. Let me add a few prepositions or a phrase in here so they can show what it refers to. Because there's no punctuation as you and I like to read. So when you're criticizing, a textual critic is not someone who says, I don't like the Bible. A textual critic is someone studying the critical analysis of these manuscripts to say, how do we know what's the Bible and how do we know when someone added something to it? So when you read in your Bible, some MSS, they're telling you there was a manuscript that had a section that the others may not have had. So Mark 16, the dubious ending of Mark 16, which I don't believe belongs in the Bible. Matthew 6, uh, Mark 16 is a section about snake handling and so forth. Nowhere else is it mentioned. The manuscripts that included that part of Mark are questionable, but there was a debate when your Bible was canonized. And so all of your Bibles have a little note that say, some of the best manuscripts do not include this section of the scripture. And they have a bracket around it. So the science in New Testament textual criticism is a little different than Old Testament. But nevertheless, we've got 120% of the evidence. It's not as though we don't have information. It's trying to distill what is the right information. And when your Bible translators couldn't make that decision, they put those notes in there. The so-called Texas Receptus, the King James Version, was built on a theory called the majority text, meaning what do most of them say? Majority rules. So if 90 of the alleged illustration, the alleged 100, said one thing, then let's go with that because the majority seems to say that. That's an oversimplification of the majority text, but that's one of the ways we look at textual criticism. Now, all that to say, if you took all the really difficult problems in your Bible, Old and New Testament, as to what do they mean, was that a transmission error, should it be in there? In this big fat Bible, it'd probably fill up no more than at most five, six, seven, eight pages of your entire Bible. And those wouldn't be texts that would be life-changing or theologically challenging. There'd be texts where we just don't know. We do not know what it means when the author of Hebrew, uh, the psalmist says, kiss the son. Nobody knows what that means. We can't translate it. There's some words in the book of Isaiah. We can't figure them out. And there's some parts of our New Testament where we don't know if a preposition should be there, a phrase should be added. Or that section of Mark being the easiest one to point to, should it have been in your New Testament. All that said, you're holding the most reliable document on the planet without equal. 
because of the 40 authors, the 2,000 years, the internal integrity of agreement, the alignment, and it is a very valuable, trustworthy document that it should increase our uh, appreciation for it, not cause us to worry or question it, even though many do. Well, let's talk about some key terms. Uh, when we speak of the authority of Scripture, uh, you'll hear a lot of words bounced around. Let me just give you a few. The first one is verbal. Sometimes you're, you'll, 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 you will hear verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal simply means the writings. And when we say the word verbal, what we're saying is it was spoken at one time before it was written down. The story was given to Moses orally. God told him something. Jesus told parables. Somebody had to write them down. It's the transmission of an oral story that is then written down at some point. So we begin by talking about the Bible as verbal, meaning it was spoken and then written. The autograph, what, let's say, uh, Luke first wrote down, or more, more correctly, what Mark first recorded, because Luke uses Mark as a source book, what did he write down? What did David write down when he wrote the psalm? When he wrote that first song on a piece of par- a, a vellum of some kind or a skin of some kind for, for David, that autograph was a verbal story written down, and that autograph is inerrant. It's without error. There are transmission errors. There were mistakes made when they copied them, just like a classroom would copy them. But they use systems to verify that and check that. So your, your Bible and mine are a very reliable documents. Secondly, inspired. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But the word inspired means God breathed. Open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. A passage that when you study scripture and the authority of the scripture and how we got the scripture, you will always find this is one of the top ten passages that people will cite 2 Peter chapter 1, almost to the end of your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is the matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No one sat down and said, hey, let me write this down. Let me be Muhammad. Let me be someone. Let me write it down. It wasn't an act of a human intent. Someone didn't say, I think I'll write this down and we'll put it in the Bible. Peter continues, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The word moved here as an illustration, the word is used outside the Bible to illustrate a ship on a lake. If you have a boat on a lake with sails and a rudder, what moves that boat? The sail? The rudder? What moves it? Wind. The the boat is controlling its movement by a sail and a rudder. And so the word is used the way a boat is moved by wind across a sea, let's say, an ocean. So here, not to overring the word, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. It gives a pretty good picture. God is the big A author who moved the little A author, Moses, to write. God is the big A author who moved the little author, Jeremiah, to write. God is the big A author who moved David, the little A author, to write. Men moved by the Spirit of God. Notice when Peter's talking about this, he's speaking of the Old Testament text. They're moved by God's Spirit to record, to write these things down. 
Third, the word plenary. Sometimes you'll hear verbal plenary. Plenary simply means full or complete, that the Scripture is inspired by God in its fullness. There are different theories about how inspiration occurred. Some believe in dictation, that God told them every single word. That falls short very quickly when we study Scripture. Because John had a personality and a style, a little a author, that's very evident in his writing of the gospel and in the the epistles. Paul has a teaching style, a rabbinic style that's very clear. He's an argumenter. He has an interlocutor. He goes back and forth. He's a logical thinker, progressive. Narratives are stories. Samuel wrote very differently than Moses, and on and on it goes. So plenary means the fullness of Scripture is inspired by God. Fourth, it's clear. Sometimes we get down in the details and we miss the Scripture is a clear story. Creation is a clear account. Adam and Eve are clear individuals that we can read about. A child can understand the story of Adam and Eve. We can retell the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's a clear story. We can tell the story of the parables that Jesus, were stories that Jesus made up. Let me tell you a story. Let me illustrate something, he would say. And he would tell a story everyone could relate to. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The the, the scripture is clear. It's fairly easy to understand at at the surface level. It's an easy book to read if we look at it from that perspective. The word inerrancy is a huge word in uh, seminaries and Bible colleges. In the 1980s, this was the issue. In our lifetime, we've seen the so-called emerging and emergent church issue somewhat bantered around. Now, kind of, all, all these things go away. The, the signs and wonders movement, the seeker churches, the purpose-driven churches, the emerging churches. They all, if you live long enough, you'll see two or three more. Inerrancy was a huge issue in the 80s. They had a big conference in Chicago, a national conference on biblical inerrancy. And seminaries were jettisoning their inerrancy clause in their doctrinal statements. There are only a handful in the United States that still maintain an inerrancy document or an inerrancy statement in their documents. Because the Bible, is it really important that it's without error? And so scholars and liberal theologians and liberal critics say, it doesn't matter. The content's there. The story's there. Um, Our church, fellowship, our elders and teachers, we are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. When you begin dismantling this issue and you say, well, sometimes the Scripture might have error, where do you stop? Typically, when a seminary or a denomination jettisons inerrancy, what do they jettison? They jettison a literal six-day creation. They jettison the idea that Adam and Eve were real people. They jettison there was a global flood. They jettison things ridiculous like the fish story and Jonah. No way Jonah could have been swallowed by a whale and spit back out. They, they can't handle Exodus and the plagues, so they use natural phenomena to explain away the miraculous event. Once you go after inerrancy, the Bible's not inerrant, all bets are off. You can, anything you can't make, the sun stood still. Well, the sun couldn't stand still because the earth would have fried. You know, all these scientists' examples come to bear and they say, these things couldn't happen. How do you turn water into wine? Well, the, the steward held back the best wine and he snuck it out at the wedding. How do you give a blind man congenital, a set of new eyes? Well, that one we don't know what to do with. And at some point... The inerrancy clauses start to break down and we start to piecemeal. Well, that's without error, but this isn't without error. That one, of course, is made up. That's a symbol. That's not true. Charles Ryrie, in his little book, Basic Theology, compiles a list of 
church fathers and what they say about Scripture. Listen, Augustine, who lived three, 400 uh, A.D., stated, The most disastrous consequence must follow, believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. If it once you admit one false statement, there will not be left a single sentence of those books, which, in appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not by the same fatal rule be explained away as a statement in which intentionally the author declared something wasn't true. In a long verbose way, he's saying, as soon as you start saying that's not true, where do you stop? And before long, you're going to say things that are really important probably aren't true. Thomas Aquinas said it this way, nothing false can underlie the literal sense of Scripture. Luther declared, the Scriptures have never erred, period. John Wesley, the founder of what became Methodism, wrote, nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, they may well be a thousand. If there's one falsehood in the book, it did not come from the truth of God. So our church fathers believed that the Bible was without error. And why is that important? If you live during 9-11, you have a story and a memory and an insight. We had friends in D.C. when that happened. You might have friends in New York. They know what happened up close and personal. I would dare say what is taught in the public schools today is a bit different than what that person in Washington, D.C. or near the, or, or in New York who was an eyewitness there. See, the closer you are to a historical event, the more accurate your recollection of that story will be. The further time we get, the revisionists rewrite history, and they keep changing the textbooks for political correctness and all other sorts of reasons. I won't evaluate their, their judgments. But the point is, the closer to the story, the more accurate. So we look at the church fathers for things like this. What did they say? If you live 300 years after Christ was on the planet, what did they say? Because the idea is the closer to history you are, the more accurate. It's a theory. It's not bulletproof. But that's the strength of looking back to see what the ancients believed. Well, many more we could look at. Let's look at what the Scripture says about itself when it comes to the matter of authority. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14. While you're turning there, remember that First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy... And the book of Titus, let's just stop there, the T books are pastoral in nature. Paul the Apostle had gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He was the apostle who planted all the churches, remember? He goes out and plants churches. Timothy, in this case, is one of his young disciples who's left to establish elders and see that churches are established and do the right thing in practice and how they carry on as a church. How do you elect elders? What's the role of men and women? How do you conduct a service? How do you pray for those who persecute you? So this is, we, in our, our vernacular, we say this is doing church. So when we read the pastorals, we're seeing how you do church. In the immediate context before this, Paul is addressing evil and deception and how Timothy is to address it as a shepherd of these flocks. So in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, beginning at verse 14, you, however, in contrast to the deception, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, underline that if you're an underliner, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness. Explanation, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good deed. So the elder statesman Apostle Paul is writing the younger Timothy about this deception and this falsehood, this evil, he calls it, coming up in the church. This is what you do, Timothy. First of all, for you, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Let's start there. He came to know Christ through his mother and grandmother. His father's a Gentile. We know very little about that. But his mother and grandmother teach him the sacred scriptures as a boy. That's where he learns it. Paul helps him come to Christ. Later on, Paul takes him to be his disciple. But he learned it from his mother and grandmother. Don't miss this, grandparents. To me, the most wonderful Norman Walkwell concept is a grandma or grandpa with their grandchildren on their lap reading a Bible story. You have such a loud voice into the soul of your grandchild. I mean, what grandchild doesn't love their pawpaw, their grandma, their gaga, their whatever they call them? I think about it, this old, you know, double chin person. Our beauty's faded. Mine's faded. It's gone, baby. And when that little kid runs to you, they love you. That's inexplicable. And you have an incredible opportunity because you love them so generously and ridiculously. They know that. And you read them and you tell the stories and you tell them about your faith. So Paul's mother and grandmother, were the, uh, the Timothy's, were the ones who opened the sacred scripture. Remember what you learned, Timothy, when you were a little boy and your mother and grandmother told you the stories of Daniel, told you the stories of Moses, told you the stories of Exodus and the Red Sea. They told you, remember those stories, uh, Timothy. When I speak with a person that is doubting their faith, perhaps they're living in sin, perhaps they're apathetic towards God, perhaps they're just sort of meh about the Christian life I'll ask them about their salvation story tell me how did you come to know Christ what's your story and I love to hear people's stories of how they came to faith in Christ we all do and they'll tell me their story and let's say for example it's a very clear story they understood that Christ lived died was buried came back from the dead they trusted in Christ and Christ alone they walked the aisle they prayed the prayer whatever they did but they they get the the germ of the gospel they're a sinner they have no way of getting close to God. They're, they deserve hell. And that God in his great kindness introduced them to Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he was buried, confirming the death. He came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life. They said, I got it. Then I began to talk to them about assurance of salvation and, and what they believed. And I use the illustration of a benchmark. If you ever climbed a 14 or higher mountain in, in the Rockies, there's a benchmark on the top of those mountains. The United States Department of Geological Survey said this mountain is such and such tall, 14,259, whatever. And that's a benchmark. It's not going to change. So I said, you need a benchmark. Mine's in 1971. I remember what my life was like. I trusted Christ. I remembered how I was changed. I remembered how, how I understood forgiveness of sin. I remembered how I stopped using drugs and alcohol. I remember overnight my life changed. I was a different person, inexplicable. That's my benchmark. When you encounter false teaching, go back to your benchmark. Has the authority changed? No. Have the critics changed? Not really, they're just loud. 
So we go back to the benchmark. Paul tells him, you continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of. Remember how you learned the sacred scripture. Your mother and grandmother told you. Now, it continues. Not just the content, but the knowledge that leads to wisdom, to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. And then he says the phrase we're after. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for four things. Inspiration is our big word. Inspiration is theophanustus. Um, The idea that God has breathed something into it. Uh, Theos, theology, the first part of that word, God. The the phanustus, phoeo, is the idea of breathing something. So God breathed, the big A author breathed something into the little A author, and he wrote down the scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. The sacred writings are God-breathed. And then he gives four applications for them here, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, all which would take time to unpack, which we don't have. Number one, God has spoken. Number two, God's word has authority. If God has spoken at his word, and these stories are reliable, it's a unique book. We use some vocabulary to help us what we mean by it being without error. Verbal, plenary inspiration, God breathed. We try to understand a little bit. So what what difference? God's spoken, and because he's spoken, it has authority over your life and mine. We may not like the authority. We may question authority. We may disagree with authority. We may shake our fists at authority. But I would suggest we need to submit to authority. If he's a good God and he loves us, can we trust his authority? Now, practically, we like that we're forgiven a number of sins. The first service, when we sang forgiveness for, uh, forgiven forever, I was a wreck sitting down here. I went back to Lindsay afterward, and I said, I have a bone to pick with you. And she's like, I said, don't make me cry before I preach. And we were laughing. I can't sing that song. It dismantles me. I'm forgiven forever. If that doesn't get to you once in a while, something's wrong with you. He forgives you again and 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 again. If that doesn't get to you, something's wrong. He's merciful to you and me. He does not give us what we deserve. If he gave us what we deserve this week, we'd all been pounded flat. He was gracious to you when he introduced his son to you. He loves you. Nothing's going to stop his love. Not even your sinful, my sinful, stupid choices. He's not going to stop his love. We love a lot of things. I could go on. We like that part. We like that authority. Do we like the authority that says a heterosexual monogamous marriage the rest of your life? Do we like the authority that says no sex outside the boundaries of a heterosexual monogamous marriage? Do we like the authority that says don't get drunk and intoxicated with legal marijuana or alcohol or any other type of drug because you lose your capacity and those things affect you? Do we like his authority when he says, you know, adultery is wrong, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed it already. Do we like his authority when he says you you kill a man, but I say if you're angry, it's a sin. I like this part. I, want, I like this authority. I don't necessarily want to run and embrace this authority because the world and the culture says you're nuts. Be true to yourself. We have become judges, everyone 
does what is right in his own estimation. Enter an authority that tells you otherwise. And do you arch your back? Or do you say? Now, let me see if I can help reframe it just a bit. If I'm told what I can and can't do, there's the sin nature in us that arches our back. Let's think of authority in a different way. Let's think of authority that's good. We love this kind of authority over our lives. We're happy to submit to being forgiven. We're happy to submit to having mercy. We're happy to submit to giving the promise and guarantee of eternal life. We're happy to submit to blessings if we obey. We like this side of the Christian life. We don't like that side. How about we reframe it, understand it as railings? A good God who loves you put authority in your life and mind to keep us on a track, to protect us. From our own sin, our own stupidity, our own pride, making God in our own image, creating a religion in our own image, inventing a religion. When you hear the phrase, what's true for you, you've just drank the Kool-Aid. Well, we have to be true to yourself. I don't want to be true to myself. I'm a wicked, duplicitous, depraved sinner. I do not want to be true to myself. I want to be true to Christ. That's the standard. I've told you many stories about my two mentors, and two in particular, uh, Prof and Floyd. Floyd was a psychologist. Prof was a mentor, teacher in grad school. And they, they shepherded me, and they were my fathers in lots of ways. Floyd was always telling me about my marriage and family. Michael, make memories for your children. Make memories for your children. I talk about my parenting struggles, and he would just shake his head. And he'd say, "You know, one time he'd say, not the same," and then he'd tell me a story. That was his transition. Not the same, but he'd tell me a story about something he'd done. As I took my kids to the park, and they were all they were fighting and mad, and they were kvetching, and I was taking them to the park, and it was just, a, and my wife was mad at me. The whole day was an unmitigated disaster. And he kind of looks up in the air, and he goes, "It was a wasted day." And then he said, "But in the drive home, I asked my kids, what was the best part about today?" Feeding the geese. He goes, make the memory. Don't worry about you and your wife having the trouble. Make the memory. And he he gave me rails. He told me over and over, Michael, pursue Cindy all your life. Court Cindy all your life. Date Cindy all your life. Pursue her all your life. When she hurts your feelings, get back up on the horse and ride again. Go after her. Pursue her. Chase her. Hunt her. Give her one flower. Write her one note. Take her to lunch. Take, do it all. Your, no matter what she says or does, you chase that woman. I still hear him tell me. She's been dead since 2001. And when my feelings get hurt, Cindy hurt my feelings. She can do it better than anybody. I hear Floyd saying, get back on your horse, young man. Be the man. That's authority. That's a good authority. Preserve your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Cindy's a beautiful woman. If I don't pursue her, some other lecherous man will. Prof told me, Get your nose in the book, Michael. Every day in the book, every day in the book. Get in the Bible, every day in the book. Michael, not for the church, not for a Bible study, for yourself. Feed yourself every day in the Word, every day in the Word. He told me over and over and over and over. I went to see Prof when he was 88-ish. Um, his memory started to be funny. Couldn't put words together well. Broke my heart, this most brilliant man. And it was just not connecting. Went to see him. He knew me. He loved me. 
He asked me the same question two and three times. I went to see him. Last time I saw him alive, I went to see him in his home in Dallas. And he had a book by Warren Wiersbe on the Psalms. And he, he wrote with these blue flare pens. You know what? Remember, some of you remember flare pens? I mean, Gene bought them by the gross. That's all he ever wrote was his blue flare pens. And he had this fabulous writing. And uh, he would underline things with kind of this wavy underline. And literally every word of this book of Psalms he had underlined. And I looked and I said, Prof, you're in he got upset when I picked it up because I'll lose the bookmark, you know. Wait, wait, wait. And I said, no, I'm going to look at it, Prof. We're sitting together. I go, Prof, you're underlining every word. What's the point? And he kind of looked at me like this. Be careful, boy. Be careful what you're saying there, boy. I said, you're reading this, Prof? Every day. You see, that authority still reaches from beyond and tells me, Michael, keep your nose in the book all your life. Don't ever stop. Is that a good authority? Is being a good husband and father a good authority? This is a more important one. Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scriptures. It widens and deepens with our years. And Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. And today, that's an understatement. Because college is awfully expensive. He's spoken. It's written. It's probably in your pocket and in your purse, as well as in a book in your hand. And he speaks with authority because he loves you. And he cares about you. And he knows more than you do. And he knows what's good, no matter what the world tells us. And he knows what's true, no matter what all the opinion polls say. You're going to see him one day. I'm going to see him one day. And I wonder what questions and what resentment we have toward his authority is he going to dismantle in the first nanosecond when you see him. He's God, and he's spoken, and you're holding his word. And it has authority whether you submit to it or not. Let's stand, and we'll read our two questions from the shorter catechism as we have been doing in this series. Maybe we'll read our two shorter catechism questions. Here we go. What is the chief end of man? His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy forever. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify him. Go and read his rule and enjoy him. God bless you.